Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season two of the Talking with Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. In this season, I'll be interviewing various successful traders and investors in my network and asking them pertinent questions about their career in the financial markets. I'll also be discussing how they've dealt with the recent surge in market volatility following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and how they are viewing the future as we all adjust to a new way of working. We'll also be talking about market themes that are likely to gain traction in a post-COVID-19 world. Joining me for today's podcast is Bruce Main. Bruce is the CEO of IV Asset Management in Johannesburg, and he's a man who I've really been looking forward to interviewing from the perspective that he's got a very, very good insight into the future and future investment themes. And if you go and have a look at Bruce's uh, Twitter page, you'll see at the top of his Twitter background, there's a, a Tesla Roadster uh, car there. And, uh, and that just says everything you need to know about the guy's outlook for the future and his futuristic ambitions. So, uh, Bruce, welcome to the podcast, Talking with Traders. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Scott, and uh, thanks very much to the listeners. Yeah, it's good to chat to you again. If we go back, Bruce, before we get into the, the, the futuristic stuff, let's just go back into the past a little bit to, the, to begin with and uh, ask, how did you get involved in the markets in the beginning and what it was it that attracted you to this crazy business we find ourselves in? So I think, uh, first off, you know, obviously my interest in shares went back to when I was uh, really young, um, even at school days. Um, I'd seen and used to look in the paper, saw the what these days you don't get uh, you don't get the share prices in papers like we used to wait for uh, the newspaper to come to get these days you can get them online but but you know in a situation where I would look at shares that were trading at maybe one two three cents and thinking that if I could buy a few of those and offload that uh, for ten or twelve cents um, you know I could make uh, quite a lot of money and that was my justification in asking my father to buy some of these shares for my birthday. And clearly my first lesson uh, learned is you need to understand the businesses that are behind the share prices. And clearly it didn't work out so well for me, um, but it certainly taught me a very valuable lesson about actually learning about the companies that generate the earnings that justify the share prices. Yeah, absolutely. You said in the pre-interview you were about 11 years old when you did that. So that was, I think, the same age that Warren Buffett started. And he has said his only regret is that he wished he had started earlier. So <laughs> I guess you can relate to that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then once you had gotten past that early stage, you know, obviously you started to learn about the companies behind the share price, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what were your first years like in the market and what, what, has, what path has your career followed over the years? Yeah. So I started at uh, uh, Frankel Pollock Vindery, which was one of the, the early stockbrokers in South Africa. And in fact, they were just in the process of merging with the Society General Bank. And that was uh, at the time I'd been there for just over a year and a bit. And I, I didn't really like the big banking angle coming into the stockbroking environment, but that was the flavor of where South Africa was going. And uh, pretty much shortly after the, the merger, um, I took it as an opportunity for me to leave, take what I'd learned, which really had been obviously from uh, an early interest, and start applying 
an information-based uh, sort of system to the entire company that I wanted to form and focus on filtering that information to get your decision processes uh, into the right sort of frame of mind and, uh, and, and therefore create a company that was more based on information than anything else. Okay, and you said you've got a major in information systems as well, right? Yes, so, so I majored in the information system. So my feeling was always if you could collate the incoming data um, that you can collect from various market participants, um, and we've got multiple uh, brokerage customers that we use on behalf of our clients, and obviously we collect all that data as well as what's, being, uh, av what's available on the internet, and we correlate that and decide um, which avenues and which areas we feel are interesting and therefore what businesses we would start looking at uh, to make the right decisions for our clients on that basis. Okay, that's interesting. And I mean, not talking about the South African market in information age, I mean, you're, there's not a huge amount that you can choose from really in South Africa in that respect. So if I'm right, you've gone offshore in many ways where, where, wherever you can, am I right? Correct. And in fact, um, what we started to feel, which was uh, quite disappointing through what's been a very stagnant, uh, probably 15 years in the South African economy, you found that innovation and a lot of uh, the areas that we would have liked to invest in here, um, that intellectual capital was leaving the country and you had no option really but to look for it uh, internationally. However, there are companies that have, that have clearly uh, that are still using uh, those type of principles behind it, which we have found uh, to be interesting and obviously have done uh, very well for our clients. But yes, specifically um, globally is uh, where you need to look for most of these new uh, digital innovation-based businesses. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned in, uh, before we, had, we were chatting and you said you guys at IV Asset Management are actually the single largest minority shareholder in Signia which is very interesting. And that company really seems to be coming out as a, a leader in terms of futuristic themes with their fourth industrial revolution uh, ETF and, and various other interesting uh, investments, uh, COVID vaccines and that type of thing. What was it that got you to spot that one? Because that, that is quite a unique investment in the South African context. Yes, exactly. And, and I, I suppose now if you sort of split our business into the three silos, which is the global and the digital innovation, the South African key specific, and then we've got a private equity division. Um, I don't have to go into too much detail, but it's it's involved in looking at sustainable solutions, all for profit, mainly in South Africa, and changing the way businesses uh, utilize energy consumption, water. And this is a global piece. It's not just specific local. But those three silos of our business cross-pollinate each other. And clearly, I, uh, being interested in in artificial intelligence, the biotech sector, fintech, precision medicine, uh, DNA genomics, all of these type of themes, you know, filtered into, I saw Signia as falling into two camps. And what we were looking at, we saw the traditional old school institutional asset management. And I think they literally said, well, we're just going to carry on doing things the way they've always been done. And we felt Signia was exactly the opposite. They realized South Africa was moving into a low, lower growth environment. We didn't actually have the cover for institutional clients to invest in the fourth industrial revolution, um, Oxford Sciences Innovation, which is one of their new products coming in. So we really saw it as a business that had ran costs, operational leverage to actually expand uh, into global markets, and, and therefore, we would correlate that to a company 
that would that would pick up a lot of assets under management out of the South African market and potentially ex- be able to expand quite aggressively in the UK. And I would imagine uh, a product like uh, Oxford Sciences Innovation being offered potentially to retail customers in the UK would be a highly desirable product for the UK market. So it's certainly coming with something that most investors in the UK would want a piece of. And in fact, most most investors in the world would want a piece of. So, so there's a classic example of of an industry that we like the innovation. And then on the other side, the other column of South Africa, areas that we started to stick away from, um, we felt traditional asset management, um, I'm not gonna necessarily name names, it's not that fair, but a lot of the traditional asset managers, some of them listed on the JSE, we felt that they just carried on doing things the way they were being done. So we stayed away from them and then retail banking as well, we felt um, lots of trouble on the horizon, lots of new uh, potential uh, wallet-based applications uh, and, and areas on that side. And certainly I, I, I did a, a course through uh, Oxford University specifically uh, in the FinTech and FinTech disruption type field. And, and we felt that we, where we used to be a leader um, in banking 15, 20 years ago, um, we felt we'd, we'd lost that gap and for example, companies uh, like WeChat Pay in China, you know, they went from uh, processing a trillion dollars worth of transactions a year um, to 17 trillion within seven years. And at this stage, um, I think it's now up into the 35, 40 trillion dollars a year. So massive volumes of money that's being moved digitally. Um, and in that comes the removal of uh, Visa, MasterCard, all sorts of areas where you've got to be quite careful um, if you've got uh, major exposure to. So lots to learn. And I think in that, very importantly, you never stop learning. So I, I spend an enormous amount of time looking at opportunities to take different courses uh, and improve my knowledge in, in this area all the time. Okay, yeah. Now, if we take a look at that, I mean, you've spoken a lot about your outlook for the future and that type of thing. But if we had to sort of nail it down to a primary investing strategy, what would you call that? Or how would you describe your primary investing strategy? So we, we specifically, and, and, and I think what's quite interesting is, is when I started the company, I always felt, and you mentioned it earlier, I started early, you know, you get that Warren Buffett type theme that comes in. But I think you cannot in today's world have just such a linear outlook to investing. And I think you've got to understand that, uh, that even uh, using Warren Buffett as an example, his best bridge friend uh, is Bill Gates for, with Microsoft. And yet, for many years, uh, he would, ne- would never invest in Microsoft. Microsoft, for us, is one of our most successful investments, $22 to 187 So, So I think you can't just position yourself into a value camp. And sometimes value is created by high revenue growth businesses that grow into the multiples and mature out to become a lower multiple value-based investment. And a classic example of that would probably be Apple that uh, nobody wanted to buy uh, because they kept on saying, but it had gone from $20 to 40 or 45, 50. And yet after a period of, of 15 or 20 years, it cycled out to become a relatively low multiple, high dividend yielding um, a technology asset. So I don't want to put myself into account to say that I'm value um, or growth. I think you've got to look at both. Um, but without a doubt, if you do not have a significant slant towards the digital innovation and technology side 
to your portfolio, I think you will be a serial underperformer. Mm. Oh, no, for sure. That's right. Sir. And um, something I've been asking all of the guests on this podcast season is the their best trades and their worst trades. Now, from speaking to you, one would automatically assume that your best trade is probably something in the technology sector. But uh, in chatting to you beforehand, it wasn't. It was something else. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> Yeah, so again, uh, and you come back to the value camp and value principles. We were very worried in 2007-8 with the global financial crisis. We felt that there was an excessive amount of printing of money. And if you thought we were worried then, you can only imagine what we feel now. Um, and, and we took a position, and it was a leveraged position in gold. Um, and gold-specific stocks, which are obviously clearly geared themselves. So in the short space of a couple of weeks, we had uh, made an enormous amount of money, and uh, and that was our best trade. And then our worst trade was uh, thinking that that would never end and increasing our position and then losing probably about half of the profits that we'd made. So <laughs> so I think it's, it's you know, for, for us, it's, uh, it's learning about markets, understanding other position, but also a lesson in that is is also don't be greedy. And, and often, when we've looked at a company and we believe its uh, its story, its growth path, everything, once we've reached a level where we've paid for our entire investment um, plus a significant profit that's uh, that's in the bag, um, we will often remove the the money that we've put on the table uh, on behalf of that client and look at uh, another opportunity where we can diversify into you. And then literally, you're carrying that position for free. Um, in some cases, we will we'll wait before we do that. And, and if we come back to, obviously, locally, a company like Signia, um, we've just been paid a significant dividend, and we're reinvesting that entire dividend back into the company. So we, we believe the growth forecast for that company going forward um, over the next uh, four or five years even with some of the difficulties in South Africa, um, it's very well positioned uh, to pick up on, uh, I think, an enlightened institutional market that's starting to realize that costs do make a significant impact uh, to the future of your money. And it's without doubt uh, benefiting from that significantly, as well as bringing um, innovative products to the market. Yeah, yeah. Now, you spoke about that gold trade where you made all that money and then you gave half of it back. Um, and that leads me to my next question, which is your approach to risk. Um, you know, how do you approach risk? How do you hedge out that black swan event if it is possible to do so uh, with your clients' portfolios? Yeah, so I think we, we've always said to our clients, black swans um, and, and events like this, Anybody that tells you that you can predict them is is really lying, and as far as I'm concerned, you can you can see the problems building up, um, but you don't ever know when they're going to happen. And the only way you can uh, basically battle harden your portfolios for that situation is to be able to make sure that the constructs in there, regardless of the environment, have got the growth prospects to continue. And I think points in case we've just shown it um, globally. Uh, all of our portfolios are now up beyond where they were in January. And that's because it's almost the, the, the entire environment that we've been faced has looked at digital innovation to drag us up, to help us, whether it's Zoom calls, conferencing calls, um, Azure, um, uh, some of the Microsoft 365 uh, office products that we utilize, all of these uh, facilities, not only do we uh, buy and hold the investments, but we in fact, uh, actually utilize the products that uh, 
that that we use every day. So so in, in that respect, I think making sure you've got the right type of investments is probably the best uh, risk mitigation factor you can ever have. Mm, yeah, and and I guess with that, a bit of diversification as well then, right? No, absolutely. And, and again, um, uh, what we certainly saw is in the initial reaction to this entire COVID-19 crisis, you had most global pharmaceutical businesses, biotech companies all going up. Um, and that was the market reaction, realizing that this was now a pandemic and, and needed these type of innovative companies to help try and find a solution. And most of the other companies, the fintechs, um, you know, uh, even the NASPAS, everything collapsed. But as soon as you started coming out to say, how is the world going to look after this? Immediately, um, you had the exact opposite re uh, reaction. And uh, the investment focus became, these are actually the companies that are going to accelerate faster and grow even faster. And probably the best example of that of all, um, which we do have a big holding in, is obviously a company like Tesla. And that you've seen go from, you know, two, three hundred dollars to a thousand, two hundred dollars in a pandemic. Um, it, it, it almost kind of defies logic. But, you know, I don't know if I've got enough time on this podcast to go through all the details of, of why I think Wall Street and, and a lot of the common people missed the fact that it's not actually a motor car company. It's a diversified energy business. Um, you need to price it and value it uh, with that kind of uh, sort of investor cap on. Uh, but not only that, it's the desirable products. It's the fact that the cars themselves are significantly cheaper to run. All of those sort of factors ultimately go into the consumer's pocket. And what is every consumer today certainly going to be looking at over the next year or two is how do I do what I used to do for less money? Um, and certainly uh, transportation and moving around, um, if, if suddenly the world begins to realize that, uh, that these Tesla motor cars run at a fraction of the cost of the total operational cost of normal cars. Um, I think it's a slam dunk. I think he's well ahead. The battery productions globally that he's already got going is, is a world leader. And, and I don't see that uh, anyone overtaking him anytime soon. His major competition um, will, not, will undoubtedly be um, from China. Yeah, and we've certainly seen a couple of those Chinese electric car companies coming to the fore. The one Nikola and what's the other one, Neo, that's also been yeah. very, very uh, in the press lately. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Just in terms of that, a stock like Tesla is a very good one to talk about in this respect and, and bringing it back to the approach to risk. You know, a stock like Tesla, like you said, it was $250 not long ago, just a few months ago, and suddenly it is it is $1,200. I mean, it's gone up nearly sixfold in, in such a short space of time. That obviously becomes a significantly bigger part of a portfolio when you see that type of outperformance. Are you yes. forced to then downweight that stock in your portfolios because of the outperformance? Um, and, and if so, I mean, that is, it, it, it can actually be counterproductive, I suppose, in, in many ways, if that is the case. Yeah. So, so unfortunately, in the regulated environment, so certainly with, uh, 
with client portfolios where you're sitting in a regulation 28 compliant environment and you have to subscribe to certain uh, uh, regulated minimums um, or maximums, it becomes a problem. Um, but most of our private clients and certainly the clients that, that are longstanding, you know, from Ivy in, in, from the from 98 when we started, you know, as I said, I would often, if the, if the portfolio or the, or the particular asset reaches a certain position where I'm able to take off the money that we originally put in and the investment is for free, if I believe that's warranted, then we would. But in, in, in many cases, um, if we believe that the, that the business case is sound and it hasn't become ridiculous, it's not 40% of the client's account, if it's got to 13, 14%, I wouldn't necessarily sell it. Uh, I mean, if the business case is uh, is still valid, um, why? Why would you want to reduce uh, the potential upside? Yeah, well, that's it. And I mean, I know there's lots of uh, commentators in, in South Africa who constantly bash the Regulation 28 for various reasons that it's too rigid. I know Magnus Haystack loves to have a go about Regulation 28 and how disadvantageous it is to, to clients' wealth at the end of the day. But I think he takes it more from a stance that it doesn't allow you enough offshore exposure, which is Correct. which is also true as well. Yeah. Now, yeah. In, a, in this world that we're living in now, obviously COVID-19 has forced all of us to become more innovative in terms of how we do things, how we manage to run our businesses. Um, we've, we've suddenly had to change the way we you know, meet online. We're not traveling anymore like we did, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's really a significantly changing world that we all find ourselves living in. For somebody like yourself, who is clearly very futuristic thinking, I mean, this must have been a boon time for you in terms of the opportunities that have been around. And, and what I want to ask you in that respect, I suppose, is are there any new themes that you see that have now come about as a result of COVID-19 and looking out into the future? Or is it just a kind of a, more an acceleration of things that were there in the first place anyway? So I think a, a lot of, I mean, if you go to the, the, the sort of areas where, and you know, what I look at is look at global mega wealth money. So if you look at the most successful business people in the world, and that's, you know, not necessarily a Warren Buffett, maybe a Jeff Bezos, obviously uh, Elon Musk himself. And if you look at where they're putting their money, what what private ventures, Sokoa Capital, another one, uh, that's uh, Rulof Borta, who was actually the CFO of PayPal originally. Those are looking at future businesses in, Again, a lot of these areas that we were talking about, artificial intelligence, I think those sort of areas um, have got to be unbelievably high growth. And, and in fact, funny enough, which I think is useful to know because a, a client of mine said, yeah, but Bruce, what is this artificial intelligence? I mean, how do we invest in it? How, how's that going to make me money? And I said, well, you know, what phone do you have? So he said, I've got an Apple. So I said, well, do you know that there's artificial intelligence software on that phone? And, and, and I said, and never mind that, the first, the first program that was written utilizing some of that artificial intelligence on your Apple phone was actually to get the keyboard to work. So what the problem was is most other keyboards were tactile. You actually pushed it and it dotted in the Q or the I. Um, but when it became just a glass screen, a lot of the problems were when you were touching the screen, um, you didn't necessarily touch the A, you touched the B. So what the program did in, the, in, in solving the problem and the team that sort of won the prize to get the Apple iPhone working 
was to make a semi-logical understanding what you were almost thinking of saying when you were typing in and and it would therefore make the sentence that you were you wanted to make so anyone who has an apple phone has got some artificial intelligence software running in the background running that keyboard you then go a step further and you go into autonomous vehicles robotics um drone technology these type of things and i can tell you um you know it's, it's a tragic part of one of the problems in south africa um and you, and you look at what's going on in terms of security and that's right throughout the townships to farm uh, uh, uh murders etc there's no doubt that drone based technology with some form of secure artificial intelligence solutions where that drones able to monitor a farm which has a significant uh, area to cover these are the type of technologies that will start being used into the future um, without a doubt yeah yeah well, it makes a lot of sense i must say on that apple uh, predictive text the comment you made, I had to smile to myself because I think that uh, I know on my iPhone it, it certainly tries to be intelligent in what I'm trying to type. A lot of the time it doesn't get it right. So <laughs> they've, got some, they've got some work to do there yeah. in terms of getting that artificial intelligence to be properly intelligent, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, You've spoken a lot about companies that that probably are quite uh, familiar to a lot of people. You've spoken about Apple, you've spoken about Tesla, um, you mentioned Microsoft earlier. But being someone like yourself who is as in touch with the future themes as, as what you are, I mean, are there some companies that you could maybe rattle off to us that are perhaps not so much in the public domain or maybe not as widely known as some of those ones we've spoken about that are that are really doing big things in the futuristic themes? Yeah, so so definitely if we hop back to America and we look at our, our, our sort of outlook here at banking in South Africa, um, and then what we saw as the challenge in new banks, um, certainly one can look at ARC, which is uh, African Rainbow. They've got Time Bank. I don't think that's quite where I feel banking is going to go, but certainly it's a, it's a push in that direction. Michael Jadon's Bank Zero, I think, will be closer uh, but again, that might not be a listed company that you can invest in. But then you've got Jack Dorsey, who started a, a business called Square. Now, Square in the in the US is a company that I believe is very well positioned to grow aggressively in the retail banking market. And if you go and have a look at all the charts of most of your retail banks, so don't necessarily go into the merchant banks, the Goldman Sachs, the JP Morgans, but you have a look at HSBC, Deutsche Bank to a degree, and all of these have... Uh, charts that are really, and I mean, that's your speciality, they're all long-term declining trend lines that don't look good. And whereas Square is completely the opposite. It's new, it's innovative, it's completely digital. Um, there's an integration into blockchain. It's got Bitcoin uh, payments available if you want it. So really, it's pretty much got um, everything that needs to be covered. And I'd say the, the challenger on that and where it came from was obviously in a comparison to WeChat Pay in China. Square is pretty much a, a good example of WeChat Pay, but it, the only thing it lacks is obviously the social media. So mm -hmm. Facebook, um, I've always, we own Facebook. I'm worried about Facebook from the advertising revenue point of view and the fact that it's, it's is at risk it, uh, with with unfortunately what's going on 
um, in on some of their platforms at the moment, but I believe it's got one of the most unbelievable network effects. So Facebook with a banking solution would be an interesting play for me. So we hold it on the basis that we believe that they will use that network effect to improve distribution of new products that will become profitable, but certainly Square um, I would look at. And then uh, in the DNA sequencing space, um, I don't believe you can be interested in that without owning a company called CRISPR. So that's C-R-I-S-P-R. And uh, that fascinating company, which has basically been able to edit genes. So so there are one or two cases already. Um, there's a lady, Jennifer, I forget her surname, 28 years old, and she's had sickle disease edited out her genes. So you know, whether that stays out and she stays healthy, and obviously we all wish her well, um, but but it's the first example of somebody who's had genetic modification um, basically changing their potential life outcome. Sickle disease is a terrible one. So um, those are the type of areas that I think um, have tremendous uh, prospects. That's fascinating. Now, in that last comment, you actually mentioned about a little bit about charts, and you spoke about the banking charts of, of the likes of HSBC and Deutsche. And, I mean, and you, you're right, and I look at others, Lloyd's, um, etc. I mean, they, you're right; they're all just heading top left to bottom right over the long term. Correct. Terrible charts, really awful technical structures. And like you said, I am a, mainly a technical guy. It's my my big thing. I mean, I, I'm not just technicals. I do think you've got to apply some level of a fundamental application to your decision making as well but I, I like to marry the two I like to marry a good fundamental story with a good technical outlook as well are you much of a technical guy yourself or, or are you primarily fundamentals only well you know what the funny thing is is, is uh, you've actually answered a question that in the the very fact that the fundamentals that sit behind a business creates a pattern and that pattern becomes the chart so I, I often think Charts are very valuable tools to look at to when there's an opportunity to rebuy a great opportunity. Um, there's a bit of a dip for whatever reason, COVID-19, market drop, whatever. There's a, there's a chance to rebuy a great business that's on a, on a, in a trajectory going the right way. Um, and a classic example of what you just said, and you can see that this comes into the theme that we're talking about, is go and have a look at the charts of VW, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, they all are in long-term trajectory drops. Now, it doesn't mean that every single car company is not going to be able to achieve um, an electric motor vehicle, uh, etc. The problem that you've got is uh, you've got to be able to produce the batteries at massive scale. And I think the problem where most of your traditional car makers have said, well, that's fine. We'll buy them from a Samsung or an LG and we'll get up. But, but then you're not in control of one of the key components that goes into your vehicle. And clearly that's where Tesla realized you've got to be able to own the entire integrated development uh, of the car and you've got to own that chain. Over and above that, most of your traditional automakers are shutting down a part of their own business um, to start a new one. And that um, unfortunately is, is always a painful exercise. So, so I definitely think that uh, Tesla has a clear winner in the electric vehicle space. And I think a lot of us that are always worried about distance and travel, um, you know, there are going to be cars coming out within the next year or two that are going to have a thousand kilometer range plus. So all of these range issues, et cetera, will also go out the window. 
Yeah, it's interesting living in the UK now where I'm in the developed world, um, supposedly developed world, um, is to see the number of Teslas driving around here, actually. I mean, obviously, it's something completely foreign in South Africa because you don't get them there. But, you know, here you've got Teslas, quite quite common to see a Tesla driving around on the roads here. And there are a number of others as well coming through. There's a Jaguar electric vehicle, which seems to be quite popular in the UK, and a few other Japanese and Korean ones coming through as well, which are mainly hybrids. But it's the point is well made, is that you see this in, in the developed world, you can see it coming through as a theme very, very strongly over here. Yes. And, and, and also the way um, governments seem to subsidize the electric vehicles. I mean, I've got a, you know, I drive a Honda CRV diesel and that, that to, to, the tax on that thing every year is huge. Um, whereas if I was driving a, a, a Tesla or a something like a Tesla, the, the road tax is almost nothing when you're in, a, in the developed world. So certainly the, the greenies are heading in that direction and, and that plays to that theme as well. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting towards the end of our allotted time, Bruce. So just one or two more questions that I'd like to ask you. If somebody came to you, a youngster, and said, well, I want to be like Bruce Main, who started his investing career when he was 11 years old. You've done the hard yards. You've made some mistakes along the way. And you wanted to give the youngster some pointers so that they didn't have to necessarily take the hard knocks that you did or learn the hard lessons that you did. What two or three pieces of advice would you give to somebody starting out in this business now? So, so I think you've got to define, you know, what your time horizon is and what you're actually wanting to achieve. Are you, are you trading? Are you investing? And I think you need to separate those two out. So for me, the outcome is always long. It's a three to five year build out of the investment theme that the company's got. Um, so I would say, uh, Focus on your time and understand that investments don't come right immediately. And I think a classic point in case would have been Signia, which we had started buying at uh, 10 Rand. And I think we got some as low as 7 Rand 50. You know, that now is uh, 13 Rand 30 and probably going to be a substantially higher that in the future. So don't, don't look at the short-term outcome of, of the, the assets you buy. Don't necessarily put all your money at risk immediately. So, uh, if you're going to get into the market for the first time, pick and choose which companies you'd like uh, to back. And then don't get despondent if they don't immediately react. And I think we mentioned this earlier. You know, you've got this Robin Hood syndrome around the world, you know, where everybody's piling money and the markets are going up because there's a huge amount of stimulus. So I think that's also created a little bit of an artificial environment. So don't be disappointed on the, the short downturns. Do your homework study hard and then the, the most important factor which probably started later in my career is and, and purely just from a, a business logistics point of view you time consuming building your own company but i just you've got to just love to read and enjoy and and it's the passion of doing that and if you're passionate at reading and enjoying and enjoying the in type of investments that you're putting your money into then you're going to be successful um, without a doubt. Yeah. To that point, you mentioned books and reading. I mean, you're, you're clearly a, a constant student of the market. Um, you've done various courses throughout your career. You talked about doing a fintech course through Oxford. Um, but are, are there any specific books or, or, if not books, courses that you would suggest people consider doing in, in order to enhance their investment career? So I'd, I'd think that the, the fintech course that Oxford uh, does is an online course, which is valuable. You get insights from your team all around the world in your same time zone. So 
people in in in, in my team that uh, delivered our final project, which was actually based on a on a wallet-based application. Um, you know, we had uh, people in Geneva, uh, London, um, uh, Middle East. So so you get a diverse range of people that you meet over in this digital environment. You learn an incredible amount. So absolutely, I think some of those online courses that that Oxford uses, absolutely brilliant. And in that, and as I said, as you're learning, learn about the companies behind the technology. And there's actually a business called 2U Incorporated, which engineers most of the digital background uh, behind a lot of these uh, online courses, Get Smarter, um, et cetera, that, that facilitate that. Then probably for free, YouTube, YouTube videos, obviously try and look for the documentaries that are valuable. There's an outstanding one at the moment um, about the growth in China. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, Jim Rogers um, is in it. They interview him, why he moved to China. Fascinating. So those are the type of things that, uh, that I'll definitely look at. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I always think if you're resourceful and you know, just have a look on Google and you can fish around and find so much stuff on the internet, it's not difficult these days to find information and get stuff. And as you say, you look on YouTube, there's plenty of, of interesting things there as well. In, the, in that yeah. investing space. And Bruce, final question before we get uh, off the line. Anything that you'd like to tell the, the listeners more sort of private about yourself? I know you said that you're big into the bush in South Africa. We always like to bring a little bit of a personal yeah, yeah. element into it at the end of these interviews. So tell us something about Bruce Main that maybe doesn't appear obvious to the listener. Yeah, so I think, you know, nothing more that I enjoy is, uh, is the December holiday with the kids and one of the areas that we go to in the Eastern Cape, beautiful. You get to go up uh, the Bushman's River, one of the longest navigable rivers in, in South Africa. And, and on in your own boat, driving up that river, you get to go through um, a fantastic Amazon, which is unbelievable. So, so those are the type of things that are uh, incredible with this country. Yeah, no, that's right. There certainly are absolutely beautiful places to see and places and things to do in South Africa. So... I miss that. I must say, I did, those sort of things do make me homesick not living there anymore. Anyway, <laughs> all right, Bruce, that's it. We've, got, we've run out of time. So thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate listening to you. And I think the, the listeners are really in for a treat in terms of the, the insights that you've given us in terms of the future thinking and a few companies that probably would not have been on people's radars. So well worth the time for myself and for the listeners. Thank you very, very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.